Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined today by Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University, and Dalba Rohach, also with the American Enterprise Institute. On the podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line that runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and why those matter to the United States. Today, our very special guest is Natalie Giresko, who served as Ukraine's finance minister from 2014 to 2016 and has had many uh, jobs uh, since then, uh, is currently the head of the Aspen Institute Kiev. If you enjoy our episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. And thank you, Natalie, for joining us. Um, we'd sort of like to take a chronological approach to uh, our episode today. Americans in particular have this image of Ukraine that we think is pretty outdated, uh, especially when it comes to uh, uh, economic and governmental reforms. So while we'll progress uh, to more current topics, I'd like to take advantage of your previous experience as finance minister, paint for our audience a more accurate picture of Ukraine's struggles since the war with Russia began in 2014. Well, thank you for having me. So when I became Minister of Finance in 2014, it was at the end of a year <clears throat> that marked the end of the Revolution of Dignity, the fleeing of the former president, Yanukovych, uh, a series of elections across the country to renew democracy from parliament to the president to all local governance, and the initiation of this war by Russia against Ukraine, so the invasion of Crimea in early 2014, and then both through mercenaries and Russian troops, the invasion of Donbass. That year, 2014, marked kind of the absolute bottom <clears throat> of the Ukrainian situation prior to February 24th, 2022. And, and the reason I say that is the former government had left the treasury empty with less than the equivalent of $100,000 for 45 million people, no military. The military had been stripped literally to parts and there had been no professional military built over those years. So defending oneself was practically impossible, had to be done primarily through volunteers and volunteer brigades. A enormous sum of debt overhang on the economy. So our debt to GDP was close to some 90, 90 or more percent. Uh, we had had the previous regime left a fixed exchange rate which meant that when we released it to the market rate as we needed to, there was a massive devaluation and a very unregulated banking system that was used as kind of crony capitalism. Everyone would open up their own bank, in essence, defrauding all of their depositors. And so we had a very, very weak banking system and a very politicized national central bank. When I began with my work, those were the challenges. The challenges were to number one, solve an enormous balance of payments deficit. Over the next five years, we could see that that was going to be a major problem to restructure that debt and remove that overhang, to then restructure the budget so that we could put 5% of GDP towards national security. We needed to defend ourselves. We needed to build a professional army. And at the same time, begin the reforms that the revolution of dignity was demanding in terms of transparency, in terms of decentralization of governance, in terms of better tax systems and so on. 
and removing, of course, removing corruption and moving to, to a much stronger system of rule of law. So in 2014, at the end, we did that. That was the beginning of those reforms, and we continued that since then. And over the past eight years, many of those reforms have really, really produced positive results. And to a large extent, I think that the, those reforms are what define some of the capacity that Ukraine entered into this new horrendous or horrific um, era in February 24. So as an example, I'll say decentralization. We decentralized the financial system, making sure that local governments could earn their own budgets, not come begging to Kiev. And what that did over time, over the last seven, eight years, is it created capacity of governors, of mayors, of communities that were demanding uh, good governance from their communities during this eight years. And when the war began, everyone didn't have to look to Kiev for uh, instructions. Um, they had capacity at the level of governors and mayors and communities. And you can see that throughout the country. You can see that people reacted quickly and had the capacity throughout, whether it's in Mykolaiv in the south or Kharkiv in the east, to respond, to take care of their citizenry. I think one of the big advances over the eight years was the use of, di use of digital technology. And that started with a project called eBudget that made the budget transparent and available to everyone, and then eData even more broadly. And then uh, later in those, those eight years, something called Gia, a mobile app, was created. That mobile app um, has saved enormous trouble for all of these unfortunate refugees and internal displaced people because you can get your documentation there. You can get your children's vaccination records there, which you need to enter a school in another country. You can collect your, uh, no matter where you are, you don't have to be at your local office to collect your pension or to collect your uh, refugee uh, subsidy, your internally displaced person. So all of these things, although they weren't planned for that purpose, in fact, helped to create the capacity. We did a debt restructuring and removed a lot of the debt, a third of the debt went away almost, and that created capacity. The reforms that occurred during these eight years uh, attracted new investors, again, creating jobs, creating competitiveness, and it freed up you know, the IT sector, which has been a critically important part of the economy during this past year. It's the one sector of the economy that continues to grow, not receive, and it continues to attract investment in a big way, even during this all-out work. Natalie, a quick, a quick follow-up. Uh, it seems to me that none of that would have been possible without an underlying sense of social cohesion and trust, uh, especially given Ukrainians' experience prior and whilst uh, being invaded. Um, it's just, it, it so puts the lie to the idea that this is a fundamentally corrupt society and this has been staring us in the face, but many people still don't see it. Uh, uh, that's not so much a question as a commentary, but I'm I'm very struck by that. You're right. And I didn't actually go into all of the anti-corruption work that had been done those eight years. I was focused on the financial and economics, but there was also enormous uh, efforts put into place to reduce corruption. Everything from stopping the purchase of gas from Russia. Remember that that contract that sum of money that was crossing hands typically through intermediaries was one of the largest contributors to corruption in Ukraine. So we stopped buying gas from Russia. We only bought gas from 15 forward, 15 or 16 forward from uh, Europe, <clears throat> reverse flow, to uh, new boards of, boards of directors and corporate governance at state-owned enterprises to try and put independent eyes on those state-owned enterprises, which again were a major source of corruption. 
to tax reforms, um, where we increase tariffs on monopoly businesses like the transfer of ammonia through the ammonia pipeline, a single, a single businessman, a single quote unquote oligarch, to the uh, system of reporting on assets and finances of every single government uh, employee. Uh, I don't think there's a country on earth that does more reporting, that requires more depth of detail. You have to report your watches. You have to report your artwork. Now, the court system was in process and was taking too long, and there's still a great deal to do. But the effort to move to transparency, the the Prozoro system of procurement, again, procurement being a major hole for for corruption. One of my favorite memories was that in one of the early Prozoro tenders for food for the military, which was always an insider deal. Metro Cash and Carry, the German Metro um, system, won the uh, award. And the Germans found themselves feeding the Ukrainian military in the earliest part of the uh, war. They didn't, it wasn't posed that way, but that's how it happened. Because all of a sudden, everyone had access to transparent procurement, including small business in Ukraine, which helped grow that small business sector. So when people talk about corruption in Ukraine, you can't say that it doesn't exist. In my experience, I'm originally from Chicago and I've worked five years in Puerto Rico. There's corruption in every society, whether it's Ukraine, Puerto Rico, Chicago, or elsewhere. It's a question of whether or not consequences are in place to that you, know, that you suffer for um, participating. And it's a question of systems. So systems have been developed in Ukraine, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and other institutions. Now we need to focus on making sure consequences are in place. And that's the court system. But Ukraine, people should focus on the changes in Ukraine over the eight years because they were massive, massive. And to a large extent, it is social cohesion. It is the population saying they want to live by other principles and values, which is how you can explain why we're in this war. Because you have a generation of people who want who see the difference between a Russian slash Soviet imperialist system with all that it brings, including corruption, but not only lack of freedoms to the European Union and the values and principles that it brings. And people have made a choice. I want to ask you, maybe though we do um, the chronological order, if you can talk us a little bit also through your sort of personal experience between the 20, uh, between 2016, when you came back to the United States, But going back to, I guess, 2004 with the first um, revolution, the Orange Revolution, and the back and forth that we've seen from the outside looking at Ukraine in terms of efforts sort of solidified by political leadership, either to take the country due to public pressure more West and take steps back. And I think that has had an ample consequence in terms of institution building or the destruction thereof to the extent, um, to, to the point where you um, re-arrived in, uh, in Ukraine. I know you were traveling back and forth in those years prior to 2014 and clearly had a crucial role in changing that system that seems to be, and that's kind of the second part of the question, seems to be from what you're telling us ever since 2014, being this time on a continuous path towards the westernization, right, towards better governance. So through your own personal experience, being from Chicago with the State Department for a long time, deciding to go back and and forth and ending up for two years Ukraine's finance minister and trying to save the country out of the 
catastrophe that was left behind, as you were describing earlier. How do you see this, these kind of two time frames prior to 2014 and after 2014? Yeah, so to be clear, I lived in Ukraine for 25 years, from 1992 to 2017. So I arrived when the American embassy was established. I served in that embassy. And our goal <clears throat> for three years, I was the economic section chief, was to encourage Ukraine, now that it was an independent nation, to be democratic, to liberalize the economy, and to have a market economy. And that was the focus, privatization, liberalization, democracy. And on the other side of the table, what you typically had in 1992 were former communist officials. I mean, what else would you have? There was nothing else. And they had all nodded their heads and agreed and certain steps were taken. We had a really early small scale privatization. Some prices were liberalized. Certainly there was voting for presidents. Presidents changed in Ukraine each and every time. So I want, I want to be clear that from 92, there is a process of development. It's just that it's extraordinarily slow partly because you don't have the institutions, you don't have the human capital, you don't have anyone who had that experience, right? They all came out of communist Ukraine. And then you have the Russian interference from the very first day, as I said, with gas, with staging troops in Crimea, and other business ties that were very, very close and very, very important. And you kind of have a trajectory of movement, but very, very slow movement. And then in 2004, when Viktor Yushchenko was poisoned and he had to demand and the people demanded new elections because there was clearly election fraud uh, in that presidential election. And then he won the repeated election. It was a huge moment of nation building and nation definition. If I were to describe how Viktor Yushchenko, again, is extraordinarily important to, our, to what we have today, it was his ability to define Ukraine as a nation state whereas previous leaders couldn't always do that. It was part of the Soviet Union, former part of the Soviet Union, but he was able to, to, to start the country really thinking deeply about what it means to be a unique nation state. Maybe, um, unfortunately, he had some, 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 some challenges with the people around him and again, the Russian influence and uh, didn't produce the economic changes, but neither was the population that demanding at that point of those economic changes. Move forward <clears throat> to 2014, and the people are faced with a choice, right? Are we going to sign an EU association agreement or not? They had been promised that since 2010, at least. And one day, President Yanukovych says, we're not going to do it. He flies to Sochi. He gets a promise of Russian financial support. He comes back with $5 billion of what was promised, not the whole package, the infamous Russian bonds that are still being litigated in, in the UK. And he says, we're not going to sign. And who comes out on the street first? Who are the 400 it's the students? It's people, again, born after the Soviet Union has long collapsed. And it is clear uh, to these students that they, they don't want that direction. That's not the direction that their minds and their, their promise and their future holds. But it wasn't the whole population. When those students were beaten terribly, viciously at night, sleeping, and it was caught on you know iPhones and all kinds of cameras, the rest of the population comes out and says, that doesn't reflect our values. We don't want our children, our grandchildren beaten. And even though I lived in the Soviet Union and like cheap sausage, I'm gonna come out because those values and principles are not. Then you proceed through that 2014 revolution and they shoot innocent, unarmed people. That's the first violence, think about this. 
Ukraine went through Chernobyl, no violence, the end of the Soviet Union, no violence, and all of a sudden its own government shoots what's called the, the Heaven's Brigade, the hundred people or so that were killed. And then that raises even further this issue of values, principles. What is a government? What is a government supposed to do for its people? And this now you, you go between 2014, the next stage, and you have a whole nother set of people. Again, people are in their 30s already that don't have an experience with the Soviet Union. And across the table, when you look across the table today, eight years later, to people like Deputy Prime Minister Mikhail Fyodorov, when you look at uh, you know, the Minister of, of, of Deputy Prime Minister for Economics, these are people who they have no memories of cheap sausage. You know, they know what's happened, but they want, and, and I have to add something critically important, in that eight years, Ukraine got visa-free status with the European Union. And I have to tell you, every person I know, regardless of social status, I will tell you, I had a dear friend and she uh, worked as a nanny, not, not a big bucks, not, a, not an oligarch, and she would take a bus, a bus from Ukraine to Paris to go to the Louvre, her dream to see the freshness at the Louvre. She'd go like 60 hours on a bus and come back 60 hours. And that even further escalated and, 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 and I, I would say kind of pushed forward this vision that that's more like us. That's more of what we want. And because of the deaths at the, at, at the end of the Revolution of Dignity, and there were none during the 2004 Orange Revolution, you know, there, this blood being spilled means a lot to Ukrainians. And I say that because now you look forward to this war and the blood being spilled makes Ukrainians more resilient, more defiant. For some reason, the Russians believe that somehow it's going to weaken Ukraine's resolve, but it's the exact opposite. So yeah, it's been a transition. And I think when you compare it to Eastern European countries, the reason it's so different and so slow, 30 years, is because we didn't have the European members, Euro European Union membership to guide us. We were always building the bicycle on our own, <laughs> always trying to build it better, different. Um, people were interfering in building it. And European Union membership provided Eastern Europe that path. And it was a very clear path. These are the things you need to do. This is what you need to do in terms of certification of food products. This is what you need to do for customs. This is what you need to do for democracy and judicial systems. Ukraine was always kind of doing it on its own. So another thing I would add is that the next stage should be even more accelerated reform because European Union membership is now clearly in the interests, fully supported, and the European Union has opened that door to Ukraine finally. So I think you'll see an even further acceleration. So it's generational, it's historic, it's in response to events, unfortunate events, um, and it's it's also opportunity. I think that's a, that's a natural segue to to the question I was going to ask you, which is about uh, the economic impact of the war, uh, its impact on policymaking, and the role of Western assistance. So we saw. Uh, and the IMF estimates uh, the economic contraction this year to be of the order of 35% of GDP. The financing needs for next year are somewhere between $39.5 billion to maybe even $57 billion if things go, uh, if things go badly. And, and you have I mean, a lot of assistance coming in. The EU pledged $19 billion. Uh, dollars, uh, and the US is helping. Uh, and obviously, there are those in the West who are sort of asking questions about why we are sending, you know, Ukrainians a blank check, etc. And, and so I have one possible answer, which I was going to sort of test on you, which is, which is namely, um, the fact that when one goes to Ukraine these days, one is struck by a sort of sense of normalcy in terms of economic life. Uh, people, 
you know, go out and eat at restaurants. Banks have operated normally throughout this war, not just systemically important banks, but basically all the banks. You haven't had massive private um, nationalizations, introductions of price controls and central planning and, and stuff we normally associate with, with wartime, wartime economy. And, and so in a way, it has been one of the benefits of Western assistance that it has allowed Ukrainians to avoid doing these sort of heavy-handed measures that could be debilitating in, in, in peacetime. And we, we have the example of the UK, where sort of wartime price controls and sort of wartime economy persisted throughout the 50s and 60s and, and contributed to really the UK lagging behind its its continental neighbours. Uh, and so so is, is this the right way of thinking about Western assistance that that if, you know, if it seems expensive, just think about what the Ukrainians would have to do both in terms of uh, monetizing the debt and and, 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 and other sort of heavy handed measures they would have to they would have to introduce. And aren't you worried that the longer this war goes on, uh, the harder it will be to sustain the political case for the assistance uh, of the order of magnitude that would allow Ukrainians to sort of preserve the progress of the post 2014 years and, and, and keep its sort of vibrant private sector economy going. So you've got a lot packed in there. Um, <laughs> we only do about five questions per session. <laughs> They're all meant to be epic. <laughs> so first of all, I don't think it's a lot of money. So I, I want to disabuse the West. The amount of money that's being provided appears to be a lot, but frankly speaking, it's a drop in the bucket as compared to the expenses of uh, the, the, the monies that have been spent in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and this is completely different in the sense that our soldiers, NATO or U.S., however you want to look at it, don't have to be there, number one. Number two, Ukrainians are very much uh, doing everything they can. They are not sitting waiting for aid. Um, and it's not a blank check, which is often used here in the United States. It's, it's, a, it's, it's money that has been appropriated by Congress, which is the opposite of a blank check. Um, appropriated by Congress and being issued by uh, in, 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 in the United States by the executive branch. So I think when you look at a per capita, given the cost of refugees to Europe, given the cost of losing, the potential cost of losing this war to Putin, I think there that this is a minimal uh, sum of money. Now, in terms of the economic perspective, yes, I do think that it has been critical and it continues to be critical so that Ukraine can continue to function more or less normally. Um, the banking system is functioning normally because of the reforms back in 2014, 15, 16, and because the central bank as an institution is very, very qualified uh, to manage the, that banking system. We shut down, as you know, about 100 of the 300 banks back then, and what was left were better capitalized, better regulated banks. And that is very telling today that you know we had banks collapsing every day back in 14, 15, Banks are not collapsing today, and that is huge. I think you have to add to that, they're all being cyber attacked, but the preparation for cyber attacks against the banking system, against the government, and against the energy system was so well done with the support of the, of the West that we're not seeing things collapse. You know, we had back in 15, you know, the energy system attacked and collapsed in Western Ukraine. Today it's collapsing from bombs, but not from cyber attacks. I think that it is extremely valuable to keep, let's think about what this financial support is going to. Remember this budget deficit of about $3 billion per month 
is basically all the non-military, not the, the deficit is being calculated with non-military. So it's pensions, internally displaced people, uh, subsidies, salaries for the social sector, meaning the medical and teachers. Uh, to me, that kind of an investment in the Ukrainian people is something that, again, is of great value and it would be much more costly. It will be much more costly if you think about the repercussions of not having the medical service there or not having teachers stay or not supporting those pensioners. It's life or death. We call it financial assistance, but to those pensioners, it's almost humanitarian. They're not, they're not able to, to, to. So this isn't even about rebuilding, let's be clear. When you said the range was 30-something to 50-something, the budget deficit, the financial, is the 36. And the, 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 the governments of the G7 slash EU have committed 38 for this year. The United States about 12, EU about 18, 19, and then the rest. I think the other 17 that President Zelensky talks about is what is called urgent reconstruction money. And there, um, it's mostly because of the bombing. So you need to restore heat, health, uh, water, uh, energy. And when you liberate towns, you need to often do some basic, basic rebuilding of roads and bridges. So that's 17, um, I think, is also worth uh, doing. You, you need to quickly, when you liberate a town, kind of bring it, give it capacity to function. I think this government has shown itself in Ukraine to be extremely successful at providing for the basic needs of people during this war. You know, the fact that pensions are being delivered regularly, that the railway is functioning regularly, I mean, af bombing after bombing, that each drone attack is, re you know, the, the energy is restored to the maximum extent as quickly as possible. You know, that you know, in Shevchenko Park in Kiev, after the bomb, a bomb hit, the crater was restored, it was covered and fixed within 48 hours. I think that's extraordinarily important to, the, to inspire and to maintain the psychological strength of the Ukrainian people who are, again, fighting the hard fight, not NATO soldiers, not American soldiers. And already, what is it, six to seven million have, have left Ukraine. Certainly, if we want Ukraine to succeed after this war, its future labor force, its demography is critical. You know, this is an investment in making that future reconstruction less expensive, in my mind. So I, I don't see it as a blank check. It is critically important to sustain basic governance. I, I, don't, I don't see that nationalization or price controls would be an acceptable tool to the Ukrainian people. Remember, those in the minds of Ukrainians, unlike the Brits back in the war, are tools of communism. And I think there would be a, a major blowback from that. So I don't even think those are on the table. I think the, the, the risk for, for, the, for Ukraine is that the monies that are promised don't come on time and that the Ukrainian central bank is forced to monetize this. And like we had in 2022, when the Europeans were late, the Americans put their money forward, but the Europeans were late and unpredictable, they, you have to pay the pensions. You can't wait. And so this year, under the IMF monitoring program, they're not supposed to monetize any debt, uh, any any of this deficit. That's only possible if the money is predictable and timely. Otherwise, they will print because they're not going to let these people starve to death. In our our last round, Natalie, I'd ask ask you to kind of cast your mind forward a bit with the uh, assumption that on the battlefield, Ukraine will achieve its goals. You know, if not this year, then sometime in the foreseeable future. And what, just to kind of frame it in a general way, have heard you telling us is that although the 
pace of reforms prior to the Russian invasion uh, was slow. It was it came from inside rather than being imposed from outside. It was something that the Ukrainians invented for themselves, uh, so to speak, rather than have than simply trying to meet directives imposed by the IMF or the EU or who, whatever. And again, that that sort of suggests to me that beyond its physical liberation, this for Ukrainians is a war of social and political and economic transformation, and that Ukrainians understand that as devoutly as battlefield victory is to be uh, hoped for, that that's not the end of the story, that that's an enabler towards building something um, that is at the center of their enterprise. Uh, I hope I'm not sounding too Pollyannish or, or whatever, but I, I maybe... maybe uh, you could uh, fill in the blanks in my uh, Ukrainian dream for me. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It is a the reforms have been always a combination of top down and bottom up, but they really started to be bottom up from kind of 2004, then 2014 at a faster pace. As as a reformer in government, uh, you know there are various things. I, I will say that having those quote directives, having an IMF program is helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Because not everybody wants to raise the tariff on ammonia. <laughs> and the guy who doesn't want it is very powerful, typically very well well healed. So I think I think what's unique about Ukraine is how much bottom up there is. And you know, I didn't find that, for example, in Puerto Rico in my work. I didn't find that bottom up swell, that debate. You know, what kind of court do we want? What do these candidates mean? You know, the amount of research that is done by NGOs, by by civil society in Ukraine about each reform, whether it's tax or it's decentralization, the debate is extraordinarily positive, right? And it helps to achieve a better outcome. And they care and they're watching. I'll, I, again, I'll give you an example from the Prozoro procurement. You know, at the, back in that 15, the, the CEO of Naftogas was being shot at when he would leave home. And so he, he put out that he was going to purchase an armored Mercedes. And people saw that, it was transparent, and said, no, you're not. If we're buying anything armored, it's going to the front. He had to pull that 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 order because he was just the public pressure was too much. You could not use that your 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 state-owned enterprise money for that. So I think the fact that during this war, the Ukrainians have officially uh, moved on the preconditions for EU membership, the seven preconditions, and they are looking to check the box on these preconditions to begin membership negotiations. You don't have to do that during war. But they are doing that. Are they doing it perfectly? I'm not a judge. I, I can't. I can't be the judge on what's happening in the constitutional court and the courts. I'm not an expert, but I'm sure civil, civil society will give its commentary. But the fact is, they're moving in that direction, even during the war, or that they've established this system called Advantage, where they're putting investment proposals. You know, there's not a lot of investment, new investment being made during the war, but they're very clear that. They know this is going to end and they're going to have to build the economy and they want to attract capital. So if you want to do your due diligence, you want to do your audits, you can get started now. The fact that they are pressing forward with the IT community the way they are and connecting with the global IT community and that they have this vision of being a global IT player, I think it's all about building that future, all about building a future that is economically more sustainable, a green future. Uh, a future that is more European, 
And I think they do have a vision that this is a war, not just for existence, clearly number one is for existence, uh, but it's for that transformation. It's for that next generation to see the kind of country that they've, that they now envision themselves. And I think, you know, there's a lot of woe is me in the West. Oh, those poor Ukrainians. And that's an important thing to understand how they're suffering. It is. And I don't deny that that's important. But I think um, what we're missing is that Ukrainians in Ukraine are empowered right now. They have resisted and turned back the second largest army. They have, uh, you know, raised capital from all over the world for humanitarian. <clears throat> they have connected with the best of the best in the IT sector, in the agriculture sector. They have shown the world that they can develop their own technologies, drone and other for war. They have shown NATO that they know how to fight the enemy. NATO's never had to fight the enemy. And so when people say, you know, do you qualify or not? The Ukrainians have the right to say very proudly, you know, we have something to offer here. We're not just taking. We have a great deal to offer you. We are a great partner and we will continue to be a great partner. And so I think, although, although it is a devastating situation, there is a lot of positive that has come out of this transformation, politically, socially. I think the challenge will be for Ukraine to move from martial law, like, I mean, you know, martial law is what it is. There's not freedom of movement, freedom of speech, uh, to move to and restore a stronger democracy. And I think Ukrainians are already thinking about that. I'm chairperson of Aspen Institute Kiev, and we get a lot of questions <clears throat> to hold uh, seminars and discussions about restoring the social contract. How does that social contract get restored? What does it look like? Ukrainians are already focused on how we create an even better democracy than the one we had. How do we repair the damage, quote unquote? How do we move forward? And I think, I think this is an opportunity for the world to see, you know, people who are self-motivated. Again, with all due respect to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and Syria and, and other places, we've been trying to force people into democracy to some extent. And they have other traditions that they held very closely. Ukrainians are themselves from the bottom up trying to force democracy. And I think that, again, goes back to your cost issue. This is going to be much less costly, and it has a much greater chance of success. I obviously think it's going to succeed, but a much greater chance. Can, can I ask one one question about one sort of particular aspect of, of post-war reconstruction, which is which has to do with human capital? So when, when the first batch of post-communist countries, including Poland, Slovakia, and others, joined the EU in 2004, most of the old member states introduced this transitory period to limit movement of labor, yet you had massive outflows of labor from places like Poland, then during the financial crisis from the from the Baltic countries. We don't know the exact numbers, but somewhere between six, seven million Ukrainians have left since the beginning of the war, including some of the best educated, wealthiest, most productive. Obviously, many are going to come back, nobody's doubting the patriotism of, of Ukrainians. Many will come back with new skills, new language skills, new human capital will contribute towards the post-war reconstruction. But I think it's safe to assume that lots of them will also stay in in in, 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 in their sort of new 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 places, will build new lives. Kids will be in schools in Poland, in Germany, elsewhere. It won't be, you know, it won't be a sort of hundred percent uh, a rate of rate of return to to, to, to Ukraine, is this something that, that worries you in the context of post-war reconstruction? And if so, is there anything that, that, that sort of Ukrainian policymakers can do about it? 
it worries everyone. I mean, it, we already had a negative demographic trend before the war, before this stage of the war. And now you've had primarily women and children leave. So you can see that would create a big challenge. Um, and you have unfortunate losses, both men and women, but primarily men in the war. So the demographic challenge is huge. I, I think, though, that a couple things. One is the shorter the war, the more easily it will be to get everyone to come home. Another reason to give Ukraine what it needs to win the war quickly rather than drag this out uh, in terms of military support. Uh, the second thing is that the government and governments who are supporting need to understand that you know people aren't going to be able to go home. If a third of the country has been mined, 200,000 square kilometers, nobody's going home in, the, in those regions for some time. That means new housing has to be built. New schools have to be built, schools uh, for, for a larger number of children, because when you look at the interviews, the polls of these refugees, they will go home when they know their children can go to school and, when, and second, when they can get a job. And so I think the job part will be resolved because with the money that comes in for rebuilding, whether it's private capital, government capital or Russian confiscated assets, I think that uh, you know there will be jobs. I think the challenge will be the infrastructure. Will there be housing in areas that are safe to live in? And will there be schools for the children? Because every mother thinks the same way. And if my kid's been in school in Germany and Poland for a couple of years, am I going to remove them to go into a bunker? That urgent restoration of the infrastructure for people to come home, I think will be a big definition of how many come home. But I think that is the government's goal. It's clear that they understand that. And that has to be all of our goals as an international community. Natalie, um, we could almost surely go on for twice as long as we already have done. You're such a such an expert and such an articulate expert uh, uh, that it's just been a joy to have you. So I'm going to wrap up for now, but also issue an invite to return um, periodically or entirely at your discretion. It's uh, been a fabulous episode. So uh, from me, Giselle Donnelly. Yulia Zosa and Dalibor Rohaj. Thank you all for listening to The Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. That's one monstrous word. And please do consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Finally, the Eastern Front's newsletter is now up. You'll see a link to it in the show notes. You can sign up for our newsletter through the link uh, and receive a biweekly update of all the things that we write, the newly released episodes, uh, and exclusive Q&A with Dalivar, Yulia, and yours truly. That'll help you stay up to date, not only with what we write, but all the issues that we cover on the Eastern Front. Thank you and goodbye till next time.